lots of people do act out of hate and it's guised as as some type of activism that we should admire. But I do think that, yeah, I think that resistance is completely born out of love. So often being asked really loudly, where do you stand? What do you think? What have you done? What will you do? We are just not a product of ourselves, but we're a product of our history, of our family chosen and blood. We're a product of the culture that we exist in and the culture we've left behind. Welcome. I'm Izzy Roberts-Orr, Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival, and you're listening to the Digital Writers Festival podcast. The Digital Writers Festival 2018 is an online festival exploring the unique relationship between technology and storytelling, accessible anywhere, anytime, by anyone with an internet connection. Join us right here in hyperspace between the 30th of October and the 3rd of November and find our full program at digitalwritersfestival.com. Come in, get comfortable and get curious as we hear from storytellers and artists from across the world wide web. To create something big, one must start small or quite possibly the small is all. In this conversation, we consider the value of the individual's unique movement in the development of the collective's transformation. What does the sharing and activation of perspective, truth, and experience in one small moment mean for the world that continues its formation onward from that moment? Welcome to the 2018 Digital Writers Festival podcast. My name is Hawine also and equally fondly known as Soretti. I am a multidisciplinary artist and to bring you this conversation today, I am joined by two incredible individuals, founder of literary platform Negro Speaks of Books, Ines Trambas, and writer Rafiyaf Ismail. Before we get into it, I want to take a minute to each locate ourselves uh, in acknowledgement of First Nation sovereignty, we're not in the same room right now. I like hence the podcast. Um, so I would like us to do that in our own uh, sort of ways and yeah, with our own words. So I'd like to acknowledge that I am on Wurundjeri country and I acknowledge the sovereignty of all nations and all First Nations and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I am on um, Wajak land um, and the sovereign nations of the Noongar people and to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging and also acknowledge that um, we have to centre First Nations voices in all of our practices as both um, artists and Afro-Black people um, and stand in solidarity. Yeah. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people here in Nam. Um, sovereignty has never been ceded, nor has a treaty ever been signed, and I'd like to pay my respects to 
elders, past, present and emerging, but just all First Nations people who are resisting, um, practicing culture and, yeah, just existing despite everything. Um, and particularly when we're talking about storytelling, I think it's important to acknowledge that we're on the uh, land of the oldest living culture of storytelling ever. And I think that that's important to think about. Certainly, both really, really beautifully said. And I really love that point. And as of when we're considering storytelling, recognizing how deeply and how long and how resilient it is that all of that continues on today. Awesome. It's so good to be here with you guys. Um, both of you incredibly vocal and creative uh, and innovative through your own work. Um, I want to begin this conversation about what it is that our individual feelings, our actions, our thoughts, our our triumphs, our struggles have. What what's the significance? What's the impact of the collective's journey towards whatever we're journeying towards, the transformation, the justice, the healing? I want to begin with talking about inspiration. These light bulb moments they're momentary, uh, they're catalytic, catalyst-like, and equally so, they sort of cement as experience and as time. You know, they, they might feel like, oh, I, you had this moment that's like, oh, this idea was born of when I thought this, but really you had all of these experiences prior that were leading up to you being able to consider that perspective. I know this is how a lot of my work is influenced um, and a lot of the work that we revere was taking place before us and will be what is revered and what is considered and what is con- considered to continue to inspire, will continue to inspire as we move forward. So can you guys tell us a little bit about uh, your respect, how your respective work is inspired or um, was inspired, if you want to talk about one particular part of your work and just take us through the connections that you made within your experience how did you go, okay, um, this allows me to create a different experience of the world for myself and others. I'm happy to start. Um, so essentially, when I think about Negro Speaks of Books or starting Negro Speaks of Books, um, it arose because I was trying to be accountable to myself. And um, essentially, I said, OK, I want to read more books by Black authors. I want to read this many books or, you know, have a consistent reading practice because it's really important to me. And despite that I love it, I don't always prioritize it. So I wanted to be accountable to my goals and, you know, this element of self-care. So I started uh, every month posting on my personal Facebook about the books that I was reading. And then the more that I posted, the more people shared back with me. And I was like, oh how sway like this reciprocal relationship that has just happened because I decided to share something that I thought no one would care about um and I'm getting so much of it too not just in terms of keeping myself accountable but in terms of building relationships with people that I um didn't necessarily even speak to but then sharing these really intimate things but I think that reading and love of literature is a very intimate thing um with all these people and I just wanted more of it and to talk to more people with different reading tastes to me. And so I just went onto the Instagram world and found this niche of like black bookstagrammers all across the world um, talking about black books and just thought, damn, I have to get in on this. Um, But 
I was inspired to make an account and post myself because I felt like I needed to yeah be a part of a reciprocal relationship because I was getting so much by I guess kind of passively um, consuming lots of the work of others um, and then not really giving anything back and so I felt like it was very important that I try to give something back because I got so much out of it Um, and I also, when I reflect on the fact that I had to make something public to be accountable to a simple goal of like reading, um, I think about how often it's kind of thought of um, as a bad thing when you have to rely on other people to keep you accountable or you have to rely on yeah, sharing things to keep yourself accountable. But the more that I think about it, the more that I think that that might be false and that we're so desensitized or we've kind of normalized not relying or not wanting other people to help you so much um but yeah that's just a side thought that's really interesting so have you found that you are you found more value in this relationship of accountability with others through sharing these things and engaging in this way like is it a part of your life or different place differently in your life now maybe there's a question I think so because I feel I think because I think of it I don't want to say payment because that's so sterile and just sounds like capitalism but I do feel like uh, exchange exchange is a better word um, I want uh, something from someone else and I feel like I need to give something before I ask for that or before I consume that and so it does make me think what am I bringing to the conversation um, Mm. to contribute equally to all the people who are inspiring me and how can I have um, the same impact or at least attempt to have the same impact on them as they have on me. I love that. Inspiration as exchange. Oh, that's, yeah. Um, So I just had like, it's so, I've never really done podcasting before, so I'm here like my body's moving as if you guys can see me and I'm like, oh, you know, it's part of the language that's going on. Um, Rafif, what about you and what's your experience with inspiration um, in the work across just however that resonates for you? Most of my work is about responsibility um, or it is, and I don't mean responsibility as obligation, but responsibility as um, I have, I'm in a space of privilege and I have a responsibility to create work um, to examine and challenge that privilege um, and also to use that privilege to create spaces for others um, so that they can create work that they wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. have the time or the energy to otherwise. Um, for me, because of my own personal history, like I came to Australia as a refugee. Um, I haven't been home in 18 years. Um, and before I left, I was surrounded by this incredible collective of artists and for them art was not just Mm. art for art's sake it was art for life's sake um like art is political and all arts is political and I deeply believe that and so I'm just in a continuous space of I want to honor these people I want to honor these voices and I want there to be space for like Afro-diasporic folk to have their voices heard here and like 
I write, and I write black speculative fiction mostly, mm. but I write because I'm at a loss for language, um, if that makes sense. Like, I came to Australia and was told not to speak my first language and lost the ability to speak my first language as a result and I've slowly started regaining that. And But it wasn't just language. It was the culture, the history, everything that was taken from me the moment um, my family was forced to flee and everything that was imposed on me when I arrived here. I'm writing to make sen- sense of that, of that, I guess, like I'm in a state of mourning, but also celebration, mm-hmm. like celebrating the fact that I exist and the fact that like black people existing and surviving is a miraculous thing in a world that tries to destroy them with every passing second. Um, and I love writing black speculative fiction because of like the hope it gives. Like um, even in the books that would like in the Western canon be described as quote unquote dystopian. Um, there, when it's written by black folk, like there's always that element of hope of resistance. It's not mm-hmm. building up to something. It's what to do after in the aftermath, because I think we, as black folk, we exist in the aftermath of the end of the world already. Um, and we're working towards what to do next. Um, and yeah, that's kind of why I write. Um, and my inspiration is basically everybody black. So eloquently said, it, like some of the things that you said that um that are just kind of with me um, is this sort of carrying the mourning and the hope and the celebration all in sort of one movement and one process of creating art and how that that is like a personal expression of I'm expressing this so that I can it can exist outside of what is my body or what is my heart or what is my mind and I can see that that is if it is impossible for one to exist in relationship with all of these things at once and not combust and how that inherently creates as you're describing at the beginning um if the political is not a uh, choice or a question in so many parts of the world it's for so many artists it's a it's like the immediate uh narrative that is present by very nature of that very moment of expressing oneself so beautifully said guys um inspiration is such a as I've developed as an artist, I've found that I'm finding more and more connection and inspiration in, um, I'm a poet by, I guess, my primary expression. So in my everyday uh, observations and even then it never loses its um, it's political or it's uh, it's commentary in that in that sense in that nature. It's you know I can look at a rock and still it's still tied into that experience right of what you've been through and what you go through and what you, how that shapes your perspective and and I just I, and I, lo- I love the conversation also about the arts for art's sake and then arts for more than art. What what the you know just that entire conversation as a whole I think is is a good thing to be talking about in life. 
absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think art for life's sake is kind of my um, my sort of thing. I create to survive, but I also create because I want others to survive. Like it can never. Um, I think when we live in a country that's as individualistic as Australia, as white Australia is, um, we sometimes forget that, um, like, a lot of us come from collectivist cultures where we're not in this alone and we've not been programmed to go through it alone. Like, um, and, yeah, we're forced into these spaces where it's kind of like you're out there for yourself and you're only creating things for yourself. And I don't know um, about y'all, but like for me, that's, it just, it causes a lot of cognitive dissonance because I can't imagine ever creating work purely for myself. Like I can't imagine, like um, Ines said, not holding myself accountable by allowing other people in, into the spaces where I create work. Um, and that whole idea of like inspiration as exchange, which really resonates, um, because yeah, like we exist in this space where we're told we're alone, but when we're really not, and we really shouldn't be. Um, and that's just like a facet of the imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, as heteropatriarchal society, um, that um yeah that we exist in i guess that sense of individualism um yeah maybe the more i find that i can if i say i'm creating work for myself i really love this this discussion because it's 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 forced me to go who is the self that i'm really creating this work for if i strip myself of all of the ways that i express to be accepted by this that paradigm you just mentioned then and I create authentically for myself in that respect I found that there is a more authentic connection with um people around me like I'm I am creating for others by creating for myself but the more real I get with who it is I'm creating for myself when I create for myself it's really I am creating for everyone else who is not me but it is it 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 I'm articulating it more and more now. My experience to be that I am creating art uh, for that from that place of, as you say, survival of self, um, and in even in that is like to um, to evolve and shed the self to keep coming back to the truth of who it is that I am, so that I can connect with deeper truth of who it is other people are um, around me. I love that. I love artist self realization but also as healing. That's a really beautiful sentiment. Like, yeah. Both of what you've just been saying reminded me of um, like when you're talking about why you create and creating for yourself, but also creating for other people because they're inextricably linked and you're creating the things that um, you needed um, and that you know that other people will need because of that. I was thinking about um, uh, Edwige Dante Katz's book, Create Dangerously. Um, the immigrant artist at work and it's just all about why she writes and she's um Haitian American and um I was searching for a quote flipping through it um searching through this quote um where she says 
create dangerously for people who read dangerously. And thinking about um, the privilege that it, that some people have to be apolitical, um, which means not writing, but also often means not reading, those things go together. Um, yeah, just like thinking about how both of your words connect to this and just a really, uh, I guess, different ways to word the same thing that seems to be universal. Uh, I love that. Um, it kind of reminds me of a quote from Audre Lord, which was like, we've been socialised to respect fear more than our own need for language. Mm. Uh, Audrey just knows what's up. <laughs> yeah. Auntie. Socialised to respect fear more than our own need for language. That is very, just every, like it's something you sit on for a while and just keep looking at your world around you going, where am I, where am I giving more room to fear than I am my own need to express and liberate myself daily? Wow. In Octavia E. Butler's book, The Parable of the Sower, which I loved and which actually I got from Inez or was it Aisha? I was in, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, I think it might have been yours and Aisha gave it to me. But anyway, um, the main character, Lauren, she is mentally, emotionally and spiritually developing this idea of earth seed before she's thrown into having to activate it by the fact that the world around her is crumbling in a really ap- apocalyptic manner style. And um, I think a lot of us get stuck in the idea development phase of what it is that we do. We are, we all have this little bit of perfectionist style to what we do, whether it appears in one way for another and another way for another person. Or some people just can go from, I have a thought and the next day that thought is before them and they're just doing their thing. And through the journey, Octavia shows us how much of what Lorraine wants to do is there. Like she can actually do it. She has everything that she needs within her capabilities. She's intuitive. She's uh, able to adjust to her environment. She's able to make the relationships necessary to communicate her idea. She is learning more and more about how to communicate her idea as she goes forward. And this is like those little moments again coming back to the smalls is all those little moments that we're often afraid of putting ourselves in the situation of but are so necessary for us being able to learn what we need to be able to step into the next thing to make or to think or to create to feel for this larger vision in creating what you have so far What were some of the things in the internal processes that held you back from creating what you you have? And after you see the impact, what have you learned about yourself, about the relevance or irrelevance of those internal processes? Um, So you just tell us a bit about what it took to plant your earth seed, your inspiration, so to speak. Inez, I'd love to hear from you first. That is a difficult question. <laughs> That's such a hard question. I firstly, Parable of the Sower, just quickly, let's just gush at what an excellent book that is. Um, I would like really appreciate if everyone who listens to this podcast just goes and grabs a copy and read it as soon as possible. It is 
life-changing um and octavia e butler is a magnificent author <laughs> i could um really ramble forever but um i i love lauren the protagonist i think she's so dope and i wish that i was more like her but i would like to implement uh some lauren characteristics in my life because i think that uh some of her the features that make her able to survive in this apocalypse in literally the end of the world um without her family as like a 15 year old girl when the world is literally ending um i feel like she has she's obviously incredibly motivated like internally motivated um but i feel like her hyper empathy because she's hyper empathetic which is um as the name suggests extreme empathy so in the book it's as extreme as if she sees somebody being physically harmed she will feel the force of that physical harm um which when everybody is getting you know jumped and shot it's a pretty debilitating um thing to live with but I think that the hyper empathy kind of shows a really extreme example of um, you can't survive without sharing. You can't survive without learning from others and learning from every source and learning without a sense mm-hmm. of hierarchies of knowledge, like just learning everything um, because everything is equally as valuable to you. Um, I feel like because of her hyper empathy, you she just she can't make mistakes you know and she does have to be um as like yeah just learning from everything constantly and then sharing like she's a natural sharer which is ironic because the hyper empaths are called sharers but um you know like everything that she learns she applies and everything that she learns she passes on to somebody else and those are the qualities of Lauren that I would like to, um, I don't know, mirror, I guess, because I think that they're so important, like just whatever you have to offer, you offer. And I love that she does that without question. And she does that consistently to everybody, um, which I think is pretty rare, especially when the stakes are so high that you might be better off if you have information that somebody else doesn't, but that she does it regardless because of, you know, she's a good mm. person, but even good people mm-hmm. can do bad things when the stakes are high enough, you know. Um, but so sorry, back to the question of actually me, just post um, this Lauren Love. I I don't have too much perfectionism in comparison to my family members. I think because I'm awfully stubborn um, that I will just, uh, you know, look over things that I could improve for the sake of um achieving the goal so if I say I want to I want to do something I'd rather put something out than not put anything at all um because I don't think that it's good enough because I don't think that it will ever be good enough because I have high standards but that doesn't mean that I don't want to um share what I can and something that I like about the bookstagram type of niche um is that everybody is constantly learning and learning very publicly and there's a respectful energy that you can be um challenged like you can be full challenged about your opinion um and you can have a really respectful conversation and whether or not you keep your same opinion or you change or whatever um 
<clears throat> it doesn't matter because it's about the conversation occurring and it's all done with respect and genuine interest at trying to understand the um, perspectives of other people. But also I like that because of the element of like learning in public. When you, if you do change your mind, nobody comes for you. Whereas in real life, it's not quite like that. And so I think that uh, because I'm not, you know, I'm not writing like receive or like you performing um, for other people to then do, you have to deal with the reactions of people to your actual creative work, which is something that I don't have to do. So I think that I would have a different feeling if if I was um, in the same position. I think I'd probably be much more um, perfectionist because I don't think that I could handle <laughs> I could handle other people's critiques, even if they're positive. I think just getting feedback is a scary thing, but I don't have to do that. So it really, it really is just all about discourse with people. So there's little to be feared when you know that you're in a like community that's going to nurture your ideas and nurture your intellectual growth and that you can say whack shit and then disagree with it three seconds later and it's fine. Mm, I think that's so important feeling like you have the space to be able to change your opinions be it day by day that is testament to the fact that you're committed to the process of learning and if yeah I've thought in my life that um because people start to form images of you based on the things that you express about and um yeah have really I guess stagnant ideas of what it is that you talk about or what your opinions about things are and forget that there's an element of you are expressing these things because you are um some someone who wants to engage and learn and thus that means you're gonna do that engage and learn and change but yeah I just yeah I I feel that a lot same um there's this kind of expectation that when you go into the public sphere like in writing or performing you know that all there is to know mm-hmm. and that's like or that you can never change your mind or you can never you know especially if you're a person of color you're like hyper visible and therefore mm-hmm. hyper vulnerable and it's just um yeah so I see it in my writing how sometimes I would pour over a piece of work for like days and days and days and still not send it out because I'm just like it's not good enough. It's going to be misinterpreted. Um, who Who is my audience? Like, because I, I try really hard to decenter the white gaze from, from my writing. Um, but like white people are going to see my work and what they take away is completely different than what I want. Like than what I would assume like pock folk and black folk would take away. So um, it's always that kind of like can I ethically and responsibly put this work out there um knowing that it might have x y and z impacts um but yeah I have this sort of almost paralyzing um perfectionism actually um surprising when you look at like my twitter feeds and stuff and there's all these spelling mistakes um but then again you know this language is whack so um yeah um but yeah like I 
it takes it takes me a while to feel safe enough to share any of my creative work because in the end I am sharing something of myself and I want there I want the freedom to be able to like be on this continuous journey of learning I want I want to be challenged and like to change my mind and to see new ideas and new perspectives and I want that conversation but in the western literary sector is there like really a space for that conversation is it is there a space for like a person of color to have that conversation safely um like at this point in time I don't think so I can I think you can only have it with other pop creatives or with other black creatives but with the wider sector um there's still like such a long way to go um and yeah so that's where I'm at at the moment like um and in terms of like seeing the impact of what I do I don't measure what I do like with oh what has it gotten me I measure it with have I at least helped or begun to help someone like is someone going to read this now or like 10 years from now or 100 years from now if my work lasts that long and feel something different like I write speculative fiction in the hopes that one day people will read it in a world where what I write is no longer speculative or fiction. That's a very beautiful way of describing, uh, in my view, it sounds like, you know, what is the legacy that you're leaving? What's the thing that is will no longer exist or exist as a result of you having done what you've done? Yeah, absolutely. But also realizing that, like, whatever work we create, whatever change we create, um, exists because of the sacrifices and the changes that others have created um we are it's kind of like um you know that theory of quantum entanglement like two particles could exist on opposite sides of the universe but they react to each other it's kind of like that i feel like us as human beings us as communities us as activists and as people we we're like that like I don't know, existing in this space and in this world, we are just not a product of ourselves, but we're a product of our history, of our family chosen and blood. We're a product of the culture that we exist in and the culture we've left behind. Um, And yeah, that's kind of where, like, that's where I think it's really, really important to have that kind of, responsible ethical writing um and sorry I'm, I'm going straight into writing rather than anything else even though I really want to talk about like Parable of the Sawyer and how like the whole like our destiny is to take root among the stars because like yes I wholeheartedly believe that um, yeah. <laughs> yeah um but yeah I think, yeah, one of my favorite authors, N.K. Jemison, who is like, she said she was inspired by Octavia Butler, and I'm just like, N.K. Jemison, you're my Octavia Butler, and if you're hearing this podcast, please be my friend. Uh, in one of her books, and her book is written like a lot of Afrofuturistic books after the end of the world, and I love that because 
like Parable of the Sawyer, um, like the Broken Earth trilogy, like um, the Binti trilogy, and um, Who Feared Death, and all of those like Afrofuturistic books, they're written after the end of the world. And I do, I I think that because as Afro Black folk, we we exist in a state of like post apocalyptic living right now, like. Um, and yeah, so N.K. Jemison wrote this in her last book. And if anyone out there is listening, please read um, the Broken Earth trilogy. And she was like, some worlds are built on a fault line of pain held up by nightmares. Don't lament when these worlds fall. Rage that they were built doomed in the first place. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Rage that they were built doomed in the first place. And if we're not in a constant stage of rage, then what are we doing? Right off of that, Rafif, actually what you said really beautifully brings us into this next uh, this question of us being at what feels like and is in a lot of ways a tipping point in our shared history. And so often being asked really loudly where do you stand what do you think what have you done what will you do and to that I thought it would be nice to reflect on an excerpt of Adrian Marie Brown's writing in the blog post civility and small resistance on her website Adrian Marie Brown uh, for those who don't know I wasn't too familiar with her work before doing this podcast as well She is an author, a woman's rights activist and a black feminist and author of the book, um, I think it was her most recent book or one of prolific work in Emergent Strategy. So this quote is, disrupting is not acting from hate. In my life, the bravery to risk disrupting the norm has always been rooted in a deep love of community, of family, of humanity, of this planet. It is being willed to seek the truth, to speak the facts, to question laws that allow or encourage harm. For me, that is giving a lot of power and agency to the the everyday interactions we have in our lives to weave into a larger experience of changing the world. If we do consider that when you have this, when you consider yourself to be connected with the person that you are, whether it's on public transport with or whether it's in a cafe with, and you see something, and this requires also to be in tune, I think, with a value system where often we are not encouraged to be living in that way. But when you are in tune with this value system, as as she's describing here, of of, of value of community of family of humanity of planet what are the sort of ways that you can engage uh, voice and dissent and whatever you need to engage to make it clear that either something needs to change um, or something can be done in a more loving or ethical way and considering this is not because it's disrupting what's around you and creating what might feel like discord is something to be um, 
you know, considered hateful or negative or any of that. It's it's coming from this place of you know, I want this to be better as a result of my being in this moment. And I know I have that power. I know I have that potential just by um, by living as a as a being of, of that that values these things, these these um, this vision and this future for all of us. Yeah, those are my thoughts on the quote. And I wanted you to think of, I wanted you to live. What do you guys think about the quote? It's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. Um, firstly, Adrian Marie Brown is so excellent. And another podcast that everybody should listen to is How to Survive the End of the World that Adrian Marie Brown co-hosts with her sister. Um, and it's completely inspired by the works of um, Octavia Butler. Um, but I, yeah, I really love this quote. I think that it can be confusing when the primary examples of quote-unquote resistance or disruption or activism um, that we see is is often actually seems to be fueled by hate not from black people though I'm, I'm talking about other people um who do seem to be disrupting uh acting out of hate which I don't think is something that we do or like when I think about all of the you know greatest black leaders of our modern day time whether that be Malcolm X and Martin Luther King or Thomas Sankara or whoever, they were disrupting, but I do feel like it was completely out of love and such an intense love for their people, for our people, and a love for a different future and a commitment to bringing that future into reality. Um, But I think that lots of people do act out of hate and it's guised as as some type of activism that we should admire. But I do think that, yeah, I think that resistance is completely born out of love because you want Mm. to live. You just want to love the people you love and you want to love your life. (laughs) Like there's nothing hateful about that or hateful in demanding um, quality or space or whatever. I don't know. I have to mull over this more, and I think that was very articulate. That's <laughs> really well said. It, it makes me think um that how you yeah and that's that that yeah it, there's a lot in that. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Um, I think this quote is going to be with me like for the entire day, and everything you and Inez said is going to stay with me for a while yet. Um. But yeah, I can't imagine like disruption or resistance from a, from any space that's not like an immense love, like a love for yourself and for your family, for your community, for humanity, for the world. Like how how else could you go out there or not even go out there, but in whichever form of quote unquote activism you take exist if it's not for and with love like there is like I I just for me it's absolutely inconceivable 
um, that they could be acts of resistance without intense love because that's unsustainable. That is 100% not sustainable and not there. Um, I don't know. As a as a writer, I get into the, I get into this space where I'm just like, is my work gonna change anything? And should it change anything? Um, and the answer is yes, absolutely, it should. Um, we create art to challenge dominant narratives, and the dominant narratives in this world right now are, um, to put it mildly, not so great. Um, and yeah, like you can't do that from a space of yeah. Like Inez said, I don't think black folk have ever resisted or disrupted from a space of hate. Um, I think it's always been a love for freedom, a love for family, for community, for humanity, for the future. And I think that's how we're going to continue to be. We're going to like create and exist and resist in love and with love. And that's like totally okay no matter what this world tells us um and yeah I just I remember this quote from Toni Morrison that um I was like oh wow this this makes sense and it's like we die that may be the meaning of life but we do language and that may be the measure of our lives I'm just like oh okay that's cool I didn't need my heart any anyway um but yeah like that's exactly how I feel being a writer right now like uh, yeah I want to create a space where I want there to be in like 50 60 years time someone not saying oh I want to create a space for writers of color because there is a space for writers of color you know yeah and I do that out of love but also out of responsibility because we are right now by virtue of being here um, on as settlers on occupied land no matter the avenues of arrival we're both beneficiaries and victims of imperialist white supremacy but we have a responsibility and a duty to try our best to like dismantle the axes of privilege that we exist on you know I don't know if that makes sense that's but yeah um so yeah that's that's where that quite took me um but yeah, I need to think about it a lot more <laughs> that makes sense I just thought of something else um I've been thinking a lot recently about uh the direction of words or how that doesn't really make sense yeah the direction of words so when it's said when it's assumed that like disruption or resistance is out of hate it to me that sounds like somebody's telling me that I'm resisting racism or I'm resisting white supremacy because I hate white people or because I hate like I'm resisting because I love black people in the direction is love me doing love to someone else not me acting out of hate and I don't like how things are phrased Mm -hmm. um 
how do I articulate this? It's phrased as if we're reacting to non-black people doing something in a hateful way versus we're reacting to one another in love all the time. It's like, nah, I'm chilling. Like, I'm just loving mm. with my fam, regardless of what you do. But I will love in different ways because of what you mm. do. But you don't cause me that. Mm. Like, I don't know. It's something about the onus. Like, the onus mm. can shift by the way you you phrase this kind of sentiment. That makes sense. Absolutely. I remember going to a talk um, by Cornel West a couple of years ago, um, and he said something about Malcolm X that sort of stayed with me. Um, And that was like that Malcolm did not hate white people. He just loved black people so much that there was no room in his heart for hate or for any other kind of love. Like, you know? And that's why he did what he did. I think the example of Malcolm is really profound in this conversation. It makes me think of like how, especially also within my life, um, I've seen how like my idea of loving action has changed and that sense has always been how much love I have for people, my community, black people. And personally within my experience, I've had to really challenge myself to go if I'm creating a world that I want black people to experience in this way. And so what am I what does that mean for how I would like other people to also experience? So as a question that I've had to ask within my own personal um for lack of a better word, my own personal evolution. And Malcolm has actually been a really a huge guide and inspiration in addressing that question within myself and then within my work um, because he, yeah, the, 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 the sentence that really shows up for me there is like, what do you do when your idea of loving action begins to change and what then of your idea of even how you love people and um also what you were saying about responsibility really really resonates with me because it's like I think responsibility and at the beginning you said Rafif of not as obligation and I think there's a way to address or hold responsibility as obligation and then there's a way to hold and address responsibility as a natural expression and a natural service that you want to give to the people around you. And that disruption, as my idea of loving action changes, the disruption isn't even, the word disruption isn't even fitting anymore for what it is that we are doing. I feel like it's really just like expressing a truth that it's like it's not um it's it's like my natural responsibility to serve you in that way is to express a truth of an experience that you are missing when you think about is the world equal when you say the world is this way or that when you go okay you haven't considered the truth for someone who is in a body 
that is black, someone who is in an experience of living on land that has been taken from them and have not have no access and are demonized or are um, are degraded for relating to their culture ancestrally and culturally um, haven't considered those things. So this is truth that I'm. So this is. I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, somewhere. I don't know if I'm going in a direction here that really ties into what we're talking about. It's very much inspired what we're talking about, and it's if I can bring it back in, um, to this, this yeah, this as we take action to disrupt. It's mm-hmm. y'all know exactly what I'm saying. Why am I trying to keep on like going around around in circles? Just no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, awesome. If do you either of you have anything else you want to add to this or to this entire discussion um, together before we move towards wrapping up? Can I just say how much I appreciate you both? Like, <laughs> that's what I want to add. Like, this has been such a wholesome discussion. Um, like, we love each other so much. Like, I love you both so much. I want to demand the best for you. And that's where all of my actions come from because I love you so much. But it's not because I hate something else. I'm just looking through the random notes that I've jotted down and now they don't necessarily connect. Um, but Rafif, before you were talking about um, like the ethics of writing when you know that like your target audience, for want of a better word, is not your only audience. And... I always think about this interview between Ice Cube and Bell Hooks. It's one of my favourite interviews between any people in the history of forever because um, I Ice Cube is a really interesting character to me just in general and Bell Hooks has obviously done so many like so much seminal work in black feminism. And so they're talking about um Bell Hooks is like saying, like, you know, what does it mean to sell out to stadiums full of white people when all your stuff is about black shit? Or how do you feel that white people listen to your music that isn't for them? And he just says they're eavesdropping, but they need to hear it. And I always think about that. And I think there's a lot of truth in that is that people know when they're not supposed to be hearing a conversation or they're not supposed to be engaging with the work. And I think that um, people know that when they engage with your work or with any other person's work, but then it's like they do need to hear it. They're obviously not the target, but they do need to hear that or read that or, you know, consume that. So it's an interesting kind of you know dynamic but um I I really like the the idea of eavesdropping because you know you're not supposed to do it but you really want to know what's going on in that conversation because you feel like you should be involved even though you know you shouldn't and it's like I feel like it really sums up in a funny way these complex like dynamics um that occur but I don't know ice cube what a man what an icon honestly um that that made me think of a line from maybe it's somewhere maybe it's from the ether i don't know 
the change that you want to have versus the change that needs to happen and will happen as a result of you just putting your stuff out there, whatever it is trying to put out there, trying to create. We have these really fascinatingly complex imaginations that either liberate or control us and at the end of the day our stuff is out there. It's going to reach the person that needs to hear it for whatever reason it is that they need to hear that and then from there on in it's this ripple effect that we either never see again or we don't understand how that has made some impact or influence on what it is I hope and I know between the three of us we all share I always say I hope with um, in talking about you know the rest of society this the shared hope that our world changes to be more inclusive to be more honest more open more just and just transforms for the better okay bless you guys it has been a pleasure i love you very much rafif it's been um really great to get to know you through this conversation i, I look forward to following you on twitter and all the years. <laughs> thank you for listening uh to this podcast Check out Digital Writers Festival uh, 2018 thing. Enjoy your day wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Enjoy your night if it's nighttime. Hit her, You are great. The Emerging Writers Festival brings you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2018. And you can find the full program live online now. Check it out at digitalwritersfestival.com and join us to listen, learn and play right here in hyperspace from the 30th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. Find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. This podcast was recorded on the land's of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. <laughs>